Let's scale smart, people. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to A608 After Hours. I'm Monica Higgins. And I'm Uche Amechi. And we are going to welcome today Pete Fishman. Um, so just first a little bit about the week. We've been talking a lot about scaling organizations, ideas, programs. And we focused on this idea of having a theory of impact or theory of social impact, which is really about understanding the why behind your strategy. So it's just not only about the what that you want to do when you scale, but also the why. And going through that exercise of thinking through that why or theory or even taking the time to craft an if-then statement is so helpful. It's really hard too, but it's really helpful so that when you think about scaling, um, then you have a sense of why you think your idea will work as you try and scale. So we talked a lot about that. We also talked about this idea of being flexible as you scale and considering what you've learned along the way. So even if you get enamored with the notion of scaling or your funders push you to scale, 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 you need to remember why you got into the work in the first place and learn along the way and really resist that temptation to scale just because somebody else is telling you to scale. So we had some interesting after class conversation about, actually within class conversation as well, about the tensions inherent in scaling whether to scale deep or scale wide, whether to centralize or decentralize, these are all really important tensions to consider. And I guess what I came away thinking about is that you can't really wish away tensions. Tensions are inherent to the scaling process. You're always gonna have tensions and you can learn from them or not, um, depending upon your orientation to the work. And so to have a sense that you're somehow just gonna plan everything out before you scale or plan to scale from the get-go just um, it's really um, a foolish idea, but rather you have to think about how to how to learn along the way. So left me with a, a lot of um, questions and considerations and great insights from students. How about you, Uche? So I, two things, A or one. I hope this doesn't come off as some sort of rant <laughs> when I'm going to talk about. And B, this also actually came from, was prompted by a conversation we had after class with some of the students. Mm -hmm. So we were talking after class about how there's so many nonprofits with similar missions and strategies and wondering like, how can we support more coordination, collaboration or outright partnerships or mergers to increase efficiency as well as effectiveness? So like from a systems perspective, this is like, above the organizations or outside the organizations, there's so much room for collaboration and outright partnerships and mergers between these nonprofits or social enterprises, um, actions that would really scale the impact of the constituents orgs, like the impact that they're trying to get at. But there's so much focus on uniqueness of mission, of strategies, of context, mm. distinctions that, I don't know, in many cases don't ultimately make a meaningful difference in the impact or to the people that you're trying to serve. So let's focus on how to most effectively scale impact, not individual organizations. Mm -hmm. I mean, I look differently at a large organization that's large because it's 
being large is the most efficient way to scale certain impact economies of scale, codified strategies, and so on and so forth. We talked a little bit about that this week. Then I do it in Oribis large primarily because they're good at fundraising and fundraising, and perhaps they're not that effective or efficient. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that we should abrogate responsibility for social impact to a few large nonprofits that become insular and too big to fail. I mean, there's, I mean, bigness, it can be a problem in and of itself, but there's lots of space between here and there. So let's scale smart. Let's scale smart, people. Love it. Love it. Scale smart. Don't expect to know everything from the get-go. Um, so uh, here with us today to talk about scaling and his own work is Pete Fishman. So Pete, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So just as a quick intro, Pete uh, Fishman is Vice President of Strategy at Deans for Impact, a national nonprofit organization working to ensure that every child is taught by a well-prepared teacher. Prior to joining Deans for Impact, Pete led the development of a teacher career pathway program in Colorado and worked for several years as an associate partner with New Schools Venture Fund. A former high school teacher himself, Pete currently chairs the board of the Academy of the Pacific Rim, a charter public school serving students in grades 5 through 12 in Boston. So Pete, welcome and uh, add on to that intro. Is there anything else we should uh, know just to get us started? Sure. Uh, thanks again for having me. Let me uh, maybe just say a little bit more about what I do in the role of Vice President of Strategy, because I think it'll be relevant for the conversation today about strategy and scaling and how we think about those things. Um, so Deans for Impact, we have a mission of ensuring that every child is taught by a well-prepared teacher. And to do that, we identify and connect with individual leaders of ed prep programs uh, who want to improve the way that they prepare beginning teachers. And we do leadership development work and also uh, work closely with their faculty to redesign coursework and clinical experiences, partnerships with school districts. Um, and we also do work to advocate at the state and federal level for policies that affect their work. So um, was part of the team that launched the organization back in 2015. And in my role, I oversee a lot of the day-to-day -day internal operations of the organization. So finance operations, HR, communications, some of our policy advocacy work, and then also uh, help to facilitate our long-range strategic planning and do a fair amount of our fundraising work. So it's a combination of kind of strategy and um, operations and internal systems and hiring. Um, I'll maybe leave it there and yeah, that's uh, get great. into the, some of the conversation. No, that's awesome. That's great. Sounds like a perfect role for you. Indeed. Um, tell us a little bit about the story behind Deans for Impact, the why and how you got started and how you've scaled. Yeah. So like I said, it was uh, we formally launched in 2015. The roots go back to 2013 and 2014. And we think back to that time, which now it's not that long ago, but seems in terms of, I think, U.S. history and U.S. education like a very long time ago now. We were in the second Obama administration and the roots of the organization have a lot to do with that time period. And I think a lot of the dominant uh, discourse and priorities around education. So we're post kind of race to the top uh, era in terms of the national uh, discourse. But in that second Obama administration, a really big focus on um, 
data and evidence and the use of data and evidence, not for the purposes, thankfully, of, I think, rating and evaluating schools and teachers, which had been so much of an emphasis in earlier years, but instead thinking about data and evidence and gathering it for the purpose of informing continuous improvement, the whole idea of network improvement communities and sort of taking an increased stance towards uh, data and evidence. And the genesis of Deems for Impact then was a uh, collective desire on the part of about two dozen leaders of education preparation programs, primarily um, deans of colleges of education, but not exclusively some non-traditional places like Relay and the Boston Teacher Residency as well, who came together and they said, um, one, we want to advocate at the federal level for better access to information, more thoughtful, nuanced information about sort of teacher pipelines and how people come into and through the teaching profession. And two, we want to work together across our institutions to build capacity to make use of that information to guide um, in continuous improvement efforts. And so that was really the genesis was two dozen leaders of ed prep programs coming together and saying, we want to do that policy advocacy work. We want to build this kind of capacity within um, our institutions. And the organization as a 501c3 um, really formed behind that, behind that mission. Wow. I don't know whether I told you this, but we had the Relay case this week. So perfect timing. Um, and also, you know, right on topic in terms of what Uche was bringing up, this conversation about networks and bringing together different initiatives, organizations, programs. So in thinking about scaling from this network lens and this inter-org organizational collaboration lens, is there anything that stands out in terms of what you've learned about scaling in this way so far? Yeah. Um, so we, I think, so first we, we took the first like year or two and just said, we have to organizationally learn really fast uh, and implement slowly and kind of taking that from some of the improvement uh, network methodology work and thinking about what does it mean to learn fast and uh, implement slowly? Well, for us, for us, what that meant was we didn't actually stand up a lot of uh, sort of programming in the first couple of years, but instead we went out and the staff that we hired spent a lot of time in the first couple of years simply visiting um, programs all across the country, some at you know large traditional land-grant universities, some these kind of smaller urban teacher residencies, for the purpose of simply identifying um, common challenges that folks were facing on the ground and seeing if we might, you know, network together institutions and also use that information to help to inform these advocacy efforts that we were trying to lead at the federal and state level. And so it was the kind of uh, learn fast by listening, by observing, by talking to a lot of teacher candidates and faculty and school leaders and uh, administrative leaders within programs preparing beginning teachers and just simply understand what are the common challenges that are faced by uh, UT Permian Basin out in West Texas that might be similar or different from uh, University of Missouri St. Louis in the heart of, uh, of St. Louis that might be similar or different from uh, University of Southern California in Los Angeles or the Boston Teacher Residency. Um, and that was really the sort of implement slow, learn fast uh, stance that we took early on. That's so interesting. We also spent this week, we talked a lot about how education is kind of this local market business. 
But what your comments point out is also that doesn't mean that every, there isn't an opportunity for looking for kind of structurally equivalent sorts of areas within the country where, you know, folks can learn from one another. Um, so that's fascinating yeah. too. Yeah. And I, and it, and it's, it's so right in the area of, you know, teacher development and teacher education and teacher pipelines is it is so incredibly localized um, in terms of how people come into the profession, the programs that they go to, the partnerships that exist between districts and, uh, and prep programs. And so when you think about just scale in the context of teacher ed, I think sometimes you'll hear primarily the, you know, VC or VC informed like venture capital folks saying, well, why don't we just you know, have one uh, online program that, you know, every teacher in the country could go for, or the folks that look to Finland and say, hey, Finland shut down a lot of their teacher preparation programs and they consolidated preparation in just a handful of institutions nationwide. Why couldn't the U.S. do something like that? I mean, the reason is, is to your point, I think, Monica, which is so highly localized. And so then scale in terms of quality has to happen via networking folks together across those institutions rather than thinking that a couple dominant, you know, entities are going to take over the whole market. So fascinating. Um, I'd love to switch gears if you don't mind, and maybe Uche will come back to this. Um, but, you know, in class in particular, this semester and last semester, we've talked a lot about you know, leaders in their own identity and how they bring their identity, their background um, into the space, into their work. And I'd love for you to comment on how you think about your own identity and background and how that's really played a role in terms of your approach to entering the space that you're working in. Yeah. Um, so my grandparents and great-grandparents were Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe who came to this country in the early part of the 20th century. And, you know, for them, education really was the pathway into American life and civic life. Um, it was the thing that gave them a foothold uh, in this country. And that's something that has been a motivator and something for me for a long time, as well as an idea that comes out of the Jewish faith of um tikkun olam, or the notion of healing the world, and that we all have an obligation to uh, to work with our short time here on earth that helps to um, heal and address injustice and, 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 and move towards a more inclusive, more just society. I'm also a white, cisgender male uh, who grew up benefiting, I think, from the racial privilege and the class privilege of my parents and grandparents and the privilege and power that they built up over a couple of generations in this country on account of uh, their race and uh, what being, yes, a Jewish uh, immigrant, but a, uh, a, a people and families that identified as white were able to do on account of that. And I also grew up, I think, with a really strong uh, sort of meritocratic narrative that was largely colorblind and largely sort of took issues of racial, gender, ethnic identity as this like intellectualized thing that you could talk about in an intellectual way, but weren't actually um, directly implicated in. And so um, that fact for me that um, 
both the power and privilege and the fact that race, gender, and, and ethnicity and intersectionality have been this intellectualized thing, I think has led to, uh, in my, my own leadership and organization, to a set of blind spots around um, emotional leadership, a set of blind spots around the power of leading with heart more than head. And so uh, the last, I think, several years, I uh, have tried to just surround myself more and more with people uh, who um, counterbalance that and challenge me and lead with heart and head uh, and lead with emotion and help to like build up my own, um, I think, intellectual and a, more importantly, emotional awareness of uh, identity um, in ways that are just really important because it's like, you know, you go through so much of life uh, not having those blind spots pointed out to you that I need to surround myself with people that will point out those blind spots for me and will help to counteract that. Mm, that's very powerful. Thank you. Well, thank you, um, Pete, for talking about that idea of privilege. I mean, it's something that I'm running into and I'm wrestling with a lot nowadays i mean one of the things that we usually talk about when i talk with students or whomever is like this concept of like what is your water that you know that little cartoon of the fish swimming in the water and one fish says to the other how's the water the other one is like what water these blind spots that you're just not aware of that actually can drown other people and you're while you're benefiting um and it's something i'm looking out um as a black man who works with a lot of uh, in context with a lot of women um in terms of like just you know gender norms and so on and so forth that are not structurally positive so thank you for bringing that up i'm going to switch things a little bit again um in the question that i want to ask you i think we mentioned it this week i mentioned it earlier but this week we talked a lot in class about understanding how to build not just strategy in your for your organization strategy is so important but also the capacity to actually support that strategy in your organization, because oftentimes you have this amazing strategy, but you don't actually do this. You don't really understand the capacity is necessary. And then you have to actually have them look to see if you have that capacity. And so Monica, I think, was talking earlier on about the tensions um, in scaling, but there's also tension just in thinking about capacity and strategy and how they relate. How do you think about that in your work, both I mean, I guess you can think about it at certain levels, like within your organization, but also with the organizations that you're working with and trying. Yeah. So if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's such a great question. It's something uh try to think about a lot because you're right. There's strategy and there's all the best things that you can put down on paper and the slide decks that you can create. But uh it doesn't mean a lot when it actually comes to implementation and execution and the implementation and execution of a strategy is where the strategy actually takes place. So, um, you know, there's this uh, uh, aphorism and I don't know where it comes from, but you all might that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, and I, at least at a small organization and a small nonprofit organization, I think strategy and culture go hand in hand. It's not that culture eats strategy or strategy eats culture, it's that they're intertwined with each other. And ultimately, at least at a relatively small organization, and Pooja, I think you were speaking to this earlier in terms of like there's big nonprofits, but then there's all these like small 
nonprofits. And if you're a small to medium sized uh, nonprofit, I think strategy is is how your culture shows up and how your culture manifests daily. And that's ultimately about people and who you hire and how you hire them and how you bring them together and the norms of working with one another. And so we think at least in terms of scale about having two, or I think about us having two core capabilities. One is the ability to um, bring folks from different uh, institutional settings and different backgrounds together to engage in this kind of uh, inquiry-oriented, continuous improvement network learning work. That's kind of one capability. And the other is the ability to translate practice to policy and policy to practice. Um, and as we're thinking about scale, then it's mostly a, a, a strategy of scaling through depth in the first sense of we actually want to go deeper with a number of with fewer institutions around that network improvement type work. And for that, what we need is people that have the capabilities of um, facilitating network learning and have the processes to facilitate network learning. But then we need additional areas of expertise outside of of uh, content expertise outside of that sort of network learning capability. So as we say work with some faculty, we need people that are able to draw upon the content knowledge of those faculty. So we need people that have, say, um, K-5 teacher education expertise to complement the uh, network improvement sort of methodology that we might also be hiring for. Mm -hmm. And then on the policy side, the strategy there is, you know, stay small, but uh, impact um, at scale by influencing state and federal policies that might not actually directly benefit Dean for Impact organizationally, but will have a benefit to the programs that we work with and enable them to reach more candidates and in particular reach a um, more racially and ethnically and linguistically diverse future teacher workforce. There's a lot of sort of focus on scale when it comes to the, the policy work that we do. Mm -hmm. oh, this is great. And a couple quick reflections on what I thought I heard from you. So I liked your rephrasing. So culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's Drucker. And we've, I think we've brought that into class. That's why Monica and I were smirking at each other. Sorry, I know this is an audio podcast. <laughs> um However, I like the way you reframed it and saying like they need to go like hand in hand. And so like they need to be in balance. And I think that's super important because the way a lot of times I think about culture sometimes emanates with how people balance strategy and capacity and how they think about what they're prioritizing. And that's kind of leading me to my follow up question. So I got from you and I completely buy in. They need to be in sync. They need to be balanced. The way I heard you talk about how you're balancing capacity and strategy seemed to say, like, these are the two strategies and this is how we try to balance it with the capacity. Would that be a good assessment? I think so. When I think about balance, too, I'm also thinking about how the internal norms and ways of working reflect the external ways of working. So mm -hmm. we try to have the internal processes say around how the internal team uh, gives feedback to each other, um, the strategies for say giving feedback to reflect the strategies for giving feedback that we're say working on with um, a group of teacher educators or with some administrative leaders. And so that sense of like mimicry, I think between the internal and the external is a little bit of what I think about with the kind of culture and strategy interplay. 
So Monica, I think he like he reads minds because that's exactly the question I was going (laughs) to ask. So do you the way I'm hearing it now? So like the question I was going to ask was like, do you ever have sometimes the capacity you step back and you say, well, look at the capacity, look at the value that we can have. Perhaps there's different strategies. I'm hearing a little bit about tactics and processes that might be coming from the capacity that you have. But have you like ever been in a situation where you step back and you look at the capacity and you're like, wait a minute, there might be entirely different or complementary strategies that we've built that we could actually, that are now viable given the capacity that we just happened to build? Or how do you yeah. think about that in general, even if it yeah. hasn't been a situation? Yeah, the big one right now is like, we've been doing all this work with, um, you know, pre-service, mostly pre-service teacher education. Mm-hmm. Some of that bleeds into the first couple of years, but um, you know, the arc of a teacher career and teacher development has this arbitrary, like pre-service, in-service, um, especially I think, and I hope that we're moving into a world where more and more, um, the idea of teacher knowledge and professional learning is just this arc that extends over an entire career. And so the place that we're pushing into right now is having, you know, K-12, uh, teachers, um, many of them kind of mentor teachers of some of these early career or pre-service folks reaching out to us and saying, like, I'm seeing this stuff that you all are doing with some of these pre-service early career teachers. I, I'm really interested in that. I would love to benefit from that in terms of my um, learning and my, my professional learning, you know, say as a 10-year veteran or 15-year veteran. And so the question we're asking right now is what capabilities do we need to build and do we want to build to actually support um, sort of in-service professional learning, given all this work that we've been doing on the pre-service and early career side? It would be a big jump. And I think to your point earlier, there's some amazing organizations out there that are doing that work and doing that work really well. And so we don't want to replicate stuff that's been done. And so the question we're asking is, how do we partner with some of those folks that do that work really well, given the um, like income and demand that we're getting and interest that we're getting from, from a lot of teachers? Love that. Excellent response. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I also, I've taken away so much from this conversation, Pete. Um, Your last comment about um, what you might want to do in terms of partnering strikes me as a really important topic that we often don't spend enough time on, which is when thinking about strategy, what do we not want to do? Where are the boundaries of our work and where can we actually effectively hand it off? And that's going to make us all much more effective, but also, I think, as a whole, as a system, more efficient. So I appreciate that. Um, So many things I'm taking away. I love this idea of mimicry. So practice what we, you know, people say practice what we preach or, you know, where, what is it actually that, um, what can we take from our learnings on the external, you know, our, our own business? Can we take on the external side and bring in? in-house and why should we not do that of course we should do that you know and yet sometimes we we forget to practice the very things we're teaching um i also liked your idea of looking for intellectual as well as emotional blind spots and you know here you know we're at an academic institution we're in the sector of education the intellectual piece is is all around us and it is the focus of course but the emotional piece and I loved how you thought about creating your own, um, we, you know, I've used the word personal board of directors, but your own kind of surrounding yourself, you said, with people who, um, you know, may be able to compliment you in terms of blind spots, but on the emotional side as well. So 
so much to take away, and I really appreciate the conversation. How about you, Che? What do you love thinking about? <laughs> thinking about a lot. Pete, man, you're deep. Um, so let me see if I can parse. Let me summarize. Um, so I guess I'm perhaps talking my own book again, if going back to that little tirade that I had at the beginning about collaboration and perhaps partnership and mergers. But I remember when you were talking earlier, I think this was in response to Monica's questions about like the fact that, yes, you can't just like have these large institutions because education is very locally sourced and very different at the local level. However, even though there's a lot of variation at the local level, there's also a lot of potential strategies and things that are actually cut across. Um, so we're all unique, but we're not all necessarily that unique. And the importance of kind of st sticking your neck up and looking around and seeing, and this I think connects to something Monica said earlier about what you can learn from others, even if they their context looks very different from yours. And of course that makes it easier when there's an organization like yours that can come out and have that perspective as their core, as opposed to this being something else. But again, this connects to like, building that learning organization that Monica and I keep coming back to. Um, yeah, I think that's powerful and it's a great mindset to have, but it's also an even better core capacity when we have an organization like yours coming in and providing that service. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I loved it. And also the, imp what is it? Learn fast, implement slow. Is that what you said? <laughs> oh, yes. I love that. I love that. Not mine. I can't take credit for that. Oh, that's that. all right. But, uh, I mean, you're doing it. A, you're doing a, it. So yeah, <laughs> I, I love that idea. So much listening. That's part of the implementation process. Okay. How about some rapid fire questions? Just three of them. Okay. Go. Okay. Uh, tick, tick, tick. Poor guy doesn't have a choice. <laughs> you can say pass. Um, I don't yeah. even know if you like dessert, but if you do, what's your favorite? Uh, so right, so I, I have a long-standing struggle with uh, lactose, but right now I'm really into a ice cream brand called Natamu. Uh, they should pay me for this. Uh, it's a lactose-free <laughs> uh, uh, brand of ice cream. Uh, it's awesome. It's been getting me through the pandemic. Any particular flavor? Uh, they have a mint chip uh, that's very oh. good. But actually, mm -hmm. all of their flavors are really good. Oh, so that's that's great. Right now. Something to look into. I should definitely look yeah. into that because I also have this longstanding um, issue with lactose, and I drink lactose-free milk. But as Monica knows, I still have ice cream. So No, you do. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you. I'm real puzzled right I now. I know. She's like, what? <laughs> well, my challenge, there's some lactose-free ice creams that are really not good. I mean, yes. yeah. So when you find one, this is one. Okay. So. Yeah, and I'm also a big cheese person, too. So again, all of these Me things too. don't work well together. <laughs> so my question for you is slightly different. So what is one thing that you're grateful for right now? Uh, I'm I'm really grateful to... Uh, been healthy and be healthy in the presence of my kids. Uh, my daughter's about to be four, and son was born awesome. a year ago. He won, and uh, the time we've been had to be healthy in the presence of them as uh, their young people have been mm. something I'm eternally grateful for. Oh, Love so that. awesome! <laughs> Definitely. Um, and last question: What's one thing you wish someone had told you about life after HGSE? This is such a good question. Um, <laughs> so this is not something I, I knew this, but the last, you know, it's been six years since I, I graduated from HGSE. I wish somebody had told me that everyone I would meet was going to go on to do remarkable things. 
so invest in really getting to know people. Um, and I don't mean that in the it's kind of Machiavellian sense. there. <laughs> well, no, I don't, I don't mean that at all. Because I think I know, that I'm I like, know. is there anything that has transactional that has actually come out of, you know, relation? I mean, I've been in the same, you know, it's, I don't actually think that's true. But uh, the inspiration and the hope mm. and the optimism that I've right. gotten from the network of people that I got to know at HGSE and continue to count as like close friends, um, particularly over, you know, the last year, but over the last, you know, many years uh they it's just it's such incredible people that come to the ed school they go off and have done amazing things before coming to the ed school go off and do incredible mm -hmm. things and uh that sort of inspiration that i draw from mm. from folks and my kind of network of friends is just awesome and so uh the courses are great love the courses love a608 um <laughs> <laughs> do uh, but you, okay, know, you can come people, back next for yeah, another yeah. interview cool. right as much as um as any detail of any course um, or course meeting right 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 yeah and of course it's more tricky in zoom land but yeah. uh we're working on it through the courses so i know, I know. terrific thank wow. you so much pete it's been really great to reconnect with you and congratulations on on Deans for impact and how much you've been able to do and scale and i remember when it was just an idea so when you were on that, you know, implement slow, listen hard phase. So it's great to see where you are now. So thank you. Seriously, thank you so much. It's been awesome. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear other conversations where Monica and I interview leaders in the social sector, you can find these conversations at bit.ly forward slash A608 after hours. That's bit.ly forward slash a six oh eight after hours.